new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for joining us uh, and be able to, to share people's stories and to hear what they've been through in their lives and where they're going and what they're hoping to achieve as they move forward. And so today we start the podcast. We usually have Sean Ram, but Sean Ram isn't here. Then we usually go to Jade uh, Black, but she's not here. And so we have the one and only Darwin Dave back again for a, another uh, guest episode. And you guys might remember Darwin from previous episodes. And so Darwin, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me again, Josh. It was uh, nice to be here with you. Yeah, it's amazing for you to, to come on in short notice. And I think, you know, this is going to be a, a very beautiful conversation with uh, the one and only Steve Leader, who is a, a senior rabbi. So we're going to introduce him and, and be able to talk about sort of his experiences. So Steve Leader is a senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple. He has just published his new book titled More Beautiful Than Before. And he is a graduate of Northwestern University, studied at Trinity College in Oxford, and was ordained at Hebrew Union College. He is the winner of numerous awards and has been a guest on CBS, ABC, NPR. I don't know what that is, but he's been on it, <laughs> PBS, and featured in the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times, among other places. So it's a pleasure to have him on the show. Thank you, Steve, for coming on. You're so welcome. I'm, I'm very honored to be a guest on your show. What is NPR? NPR is National Public Radio. It's the uh, public broadcasting network in the United States. And really, everything they do is at a very high level because they don't have to pander to the masses to sell commercial time. Oh, okay. Yeah, see, I, I didn't know that. I'm, <laughs> you know, like, I'm from Canada. Darwin, did you know about that? Yeah. Yes, I did. Okay. Well, it's just me then. <laughs> and so the, uh, what I want to sort of first talk about is what really brought you towards being a rabbi? Because it's a very unique and specific uh, field. So were you Jewish growing up? Was your parent a rabbi? Like, how did that yeah. all work out? Uh, well, I was born and raised a Jew in a Jewish family in an almost exclusively Jewish neighborhood in Minnesota, of all places this tiny little suburb in Minnesota called St. Louis Park. And uh, it was where, I wouldn't say all, but most of the Jews uh, in Minneapolis lived in this one little neighborhood. And uh, so I grew up in a, in a kind of, um, you know, subculture w within a majoritarian culture. I don't know if you ever saw the movie A Serious Man by the Coen Brothers. Uh, they grew up a few blocks from me. And uh, I, I'll just tell you, if you see that movie, you'll understand my entire childhood perfectly. They got it right. So I was raised in a, you know, culturally Jewish home. I grew up in a in a working class family. My dad owned a junkyard uh, with my uncle. It's called Leader Brothers Scrap Iron and Metal, uh, where I worked, you know, summers and, and weekends most of my childhood. And, you know, what really impelled me to become a rabbi were a couple of different things. The first is that, you know, growing up in a, in a working class family like I did, most creative pursuits were really summarily dismissed as, you know, frivolous or unimportant. You want to be an actor, forget it. You want to be a writer, forget it. You want to be a musician, forget it. You know, life was about college, law school, and then, you know, either taking over the family business or doing something that would be an improvement on the generation. Uh, that preceded me. But I was the kid who uh, really loved going to synagogue, and it was the one place where I was allowed to be creative. It was the place, the one place my parents would, for example, drive me to in the winter in Minnesota. They, 
they always supported that part of my life. Uh, and then when I was 14, I got into a little bit of trouble and my parents went to see our rabbi who said, Steve's a good kid, but you need to change his peer group. You should send him to this Jewish summer camp in Wisconsin, which they did. And from the moment I set foot off of the bus, I was in love with everything about the place. I loved it all. The music, the counselors, you know, the girls, the services, the living in the tents and growing our food in the garden and everything about it uh, just, you know, made me feel like I had found myself. And I've frankly never looked back since I was 15. Wow, that's so amazing to hear and to, to know at such a young age, like what your passion is. Uh, for me, it, it took a long time. Like I'm doing the, the research now um, on grief dreams. But that was like, I was like over like 20, I was around like 25 when that sort of took hold. And it's fascinating when you can have something so early on to put your passion towards, to be able to read. So you have, I think that's just amazing that you're, you had that, I guess, calling right away. You know, it is a calling. I was one of those kids, even when I was very young, that when someone else was in trouble or hurting, I would run toward them, not away from them. That's sort of baked into my DNA. And, you know, the rabbinate is, in addition to being a scholarly and spiritual profession, it's also a helping profession. It's a profession where, you know, the first and most important thing you do is take care of people when their lives fall apart. That, by the way, is what led to me deciding to write this book, uh, More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us, because I've been on the inside of so many people's lives as they've, you know, walked through, walked through terrible pain and suffering. And so when people come to you, what's something that, you know, you, that was kind of shocking towards you in the beginning of being a rabbi? Because you want to help people, but I'm guessing the flood of people that came to you was a lot greater than anything you've seen before. That's true. You know, it, uh, I'm the senior rabbi, one of the largest congregations in the world. We have 2,400 families. So it's about 10,000 people. And some days it does feel a little bit like trying to sip out of a fire hose, you know, in terms of the, the amount of pain and suffering that comes at me. Uh, what I learned pretty early on was that if I got overly consumed by the suffering of others, I was of no use to them. So you learn pretty quickly that you have to have uh, a certain amount of uh, cognitive and emotional distance in order to be helpful to people as they're going through things. But I definitely made mistakes when I was young. And by the way, one of the major points of the book is that for 27 years, I was counseling people through pain and suffering. And it wasn't until uh, three years ago when I experienced tremendous physical pain followed by depression and emotional pain that I realized I really didn't know very much about suffering when I was helping all those people. I did the best I could. I'm sure I helped people. But having gone through a kind of searing physical and emotional experience myself has made me a much better rabbi, a much better husband, a much better father, a much better friend, a much better human being. And, and that's why I you know, sort of phrased it as more beautiful than before, that when something breaks us, there's a kind of wholeness that emerges from the brokenness that, that's really the essence of who we are. So in counseling all those people, did helping them through their experience and seeing them go through what they were going through, did that help you at all, even in the least bit, in dealing with what you're going through now? 
a little, but not much. You know, there's a, a very famous aphorism that's usually attributed to Marshall McLuhan, one of your fellow Canadians. Marshall McLuhan said, I don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't the fish. And of course, what he meant by that was that we're so immersed in our own reality that we actually have no perspective on it. You know, when does a fish discover water? When it's caught, right? When it's outside of the water, that's when a fish discovers water. So I, I frankly, in the midst of my own pain, wasn't able, frankly, to see my own situation very well. And it, it took outside help and time and uh, friendship and love and particularly the support of my utterly remarkable wife to help me see the light of day again. So then how does the way you counsel people now, how, how has that changed in the last three years? So take yourself three years from now to today, and then how has that changed? I think I can. I know that I now speak to people about their own pain with a much greater sense of authenticity. I am uh, much quicker to point out a few things to people that I think help us all go through and come out of pain in a in a more whole and beautiful way. Uh, the first is is that I do ask people to kind of first take a, an inventory of their past life. Most people think in a painful situation that. I will never get through this. But if they actually look back at other experiences in their lives, this is not the first time they've experienced pain. And while the order of magnitude of the pain might be greater, they they have had the internal resources before to get through painful situations. And those those internal resources, their family, their friends, their inner sense of spirituality, their connection to other people, their connection to God, their willingness to reach out for professional help. All of these things that have, that have helped them in the past are there to help them again in their current situation if they're willing to be open to it. And, and you know, I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that I have a much better understanding of something I knew nothing about before my own pain, which was the uh, depression that came with it. When people came to me suffering from depression before I suffered it myself. I frankly had no idea what they were talking about. But after, um, before and after my surgery, I was uh, taking opioids to a degree that frankly seems staggering now in retrospect. And as a result of the opioids and the steroids, I became clinically depressed. And I never understood depression before. I never understood how dark it is, how heavy it is, how hopeless and and paralyzing it is. But once I experienced it myself, I'm now much, much better at relating to people who are feeling it themselves and at identifying with them and helping them understand that I do understand. You know, one of the most terrible things about going through a painful experience, whether physical or emotional, is a feeling of isolation and a feeling of abandonment, a feeling of being cursed and being in it alone. And I am now much better able to pierce that sense of aloneness in others because I understand it better. Yeah, and when talking so about... Just, yeah, you can go. Okay, just one more question, because um, now I'm curious. Uh, just to give you a little bit of my background, Steve, um, I lost my father uh, to a violent crime when I was 10. He was murdered in a store that my parents owned and operated. And for a while, I was dismissive. A lot of people who would come to me and try to relate their loss 
to mine, almost in a dismissive way as if your parents haven't, hadn't been killed while you're a kid, then you can't relate to anything that I'm going through. As someone who is a, I guess, quote-unquote, man of the cloth, have you become dismissive in your own pain and trying to relate to other people who might be seeking counsel from you? I'm not sure I understand what you're really asking me, Darwin. When you say, did I become dismissive of my own pain, help me understand what you're asking. I shouldn't say of, of your own pain, of their pain. In other words, has someone come to you and asked you uh, for help in a particular situation and in trying to look at their situation, compared their situation to yours, and have simply said that what they're going through really isn't that bad because you're dealing with you yourself on a personal level are dealing with something that seems to be a lot greater, if that makes sense. I understand. Yes. Uh, no, and I, in fact, I think that's one of the things that going through a painful experience yourself teaches you is that when a person tells you he or she is in terrible pain, that's not a relative statement. You know, um, you don't come back with the uh, stop crying or I'll really give you something to cry about parenting technique that my father used. If when someone tells you this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life and they mean it, then it means that they are in the most extreme pain they've ever been in in their lives. And this is not a contest. You have to treat each person as an individual. And in that individual's universe, they are in what they believe to be an extreme and are in an extreme form of pain. And rather than dismiss that, what I try to do is go back to myself and my own experience and find within myself all of the fear and anxiety and depression and confusion that being in the most extreme pain in my life caused me and realize that that's the pain level they are experiencing, that person is experiencing, and to relate to them at that level. So to be frank, it's, it's actually the opposite. My own pain that I went through has not caused me to be dismissive of other people's pain. It's caused me to be more attentive to it, aware of it, and sensitive to it. That's, that's, that's a beautiful actually, thing. Thanks. Yeah, that's very beautiful. And, you know, I can, and I think what you're saying too is that you, when, you, when you can sit with your own suffering, it's so much easier to sit with other people's suffering and they feel it. And I think, you know, there's a, there's, as I think I was saying, like there's sometimes there's people that you say, oh, my loss is the worst ever. And then they dismiss other people's losses around them just as a way to cope. And, but you're saying that there's a different way. And I like that. And I like that I, you can sit with your own suffering to help others. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a beautiful little passage from the book. There's a little story in the book. The book is not a purely religious book. There's a lot of ancient wisdom in it. There's wisdom in it from several religions and also modern science and psychology and a lot of stories of a lot of people suffering who found a way to make something beautiful of it, uh, who made their lives worthy of their suffering. One of the things in the book I talk about is this idea that God says in the Bible, uh, I put my words upon your heart. And one of the sages asks, why, why does God place words upon a person's heart rather than in a person's heart? I mean, isn't God capable of doing whatever God wants? Why on and not in? And then the sages go on to answer, God places words upon our hearts because it's only when our hearts are broken that the words are able to enter. Mm. It's only brokenness that enables us to become truly empathetic and compassionate and kind and humane human beings. 
Wow. That's actually, it's very amazing to look at suffering in that way of breaking you open and to, to this new level of, I guess, understanding or perspective on the world and other people's suffering. I think, you know, like in our culture, we, we box ourselves in with our beliefs and how things are going. And so when we hear someone suffering, you know, say on the news, or if there's a hurricane or an earthquake, we don't really understand what, what that feels like. And we just keep moving forward. But if you've like actually had that happen, or if you had someone die, you understand like that pain they're going through. And you're just like, your heart is just more compassionate to the world in general. I think too, like you see that in grief a lot, like people who have bereavement programs, they require you to have uh, had your own loss before you can volunteer. And I think that's the reason because when you've dealt with your own loss, uh, you can actually sit with other people enough to to see what they're going through and to be also be hopeful because uh, you're a mark of something that you can achieve as you move forward. So in your, when you talk to these people and you say like the biggest thing to them is that they feel this sense of abandonment, what, what do you tell them? Because I, mostly in their lives, they probably do because a lot of people just can't sit with suffering. They don't have the coping mechanisms for that. Well, sometimes when you feel that the world has abandoned you, it, it's really that you've abandoned the world. Mm-hmm. It's easy when you're suffering to draw inward. Uh, and uh, there's a chapter in the book which is entitled, The Prisoner Cannot Free Himself. The prisoner cannot free himself. In other words, when we are imprisoned by something, we have to reach out. No one gets out of that prison of pain and suffering and fear and anxiety by himself or herself. Reach out. So the first thing I say to people who are feeling uh, isolated, abandoned, cursed is reach out. Tell people. Say it to the people you love. Let them know because they will raise you from your suffering. Now, will you be disappointed by some? Yes. I often say to people, particularly people who are in a kind of trouble that results in the loss of a reputation, uh, somebody who's suffering public embarrassment, that sort of thing. I often say to people, look, you're about to find out who your friends are. You're about to find out who's not your friend. You're going to be disappointed and you're going to be beautifully and pleasantly surprised by people. And then I say something to people, I often put it in a way that sounds very glib and very cliche, but it's also very true and it's easy to hold on to. Uh, When you are suffering and you reach out to others, the people who matter won't mind. And the people who mind don't matter. You surround yourself with the people who really care. That's all that matters. And, Mm. And... There is no antidote to suffering beyond the presence of people who care. You know, a man whose 30-year-old daughter was killed in a car accident uh, was at what Jews call a shiva minion, a a service that happens after the funeral in the home for seven days, uh, a brief little prayer service. And at the end of that prayer service, people were all together and and they were singing this beautiful song at the end and the man turned uh, and said this changes nothing but it means everything so when when you are suffering surrounding yourself with people who care being willing to be open to that 
uh, is extremely important. Yeah, having a, a friend, like I said, one of those true friends that can come out and, and be with you, even though they may not understand your suffering, because you said, you know, like when you, when you had your own loss or your own kind of suffering, you tend to be more compassionate. Even if you haven't had that, but you have a friend who's willing to listen, to sit with you, I think, you know, like what a great gift uh, to have because there's many people that don't have that. And that's really, you know, really sad to see in our culture. Um, but it helps you cherish like what you do have, you know? Um, yeah. I know a lot, of, a lot of people say that after loss. They, they realize who their friends are. Um, but they make new friends. And I think there's that, you know, there is that sadness when you do, not only you have just lost someone, but then you also realize who someone was, which is also its own grief because they're not who you thought they were. And now you're, yes. you're saddened about that, how like you've spent like 15 years with this person, but only now are you seeing what was truly inside. Yeah. So let's talk for a moment about how to help someone who's suffering. Uh, there's a lot of good pragmatic information in the book about how to help someone you love uh, or even a stranger who's suffering, but more importantly, those people who uh, are closest to us in our lives. The first thing I always tell people is never, ever to say the following seven words. Let me know if you need anything. Never say that to someone who's suffering. Because, first of all, it smacks of false empathy. Most people say that are really hoping the person isn't going to respond. Secondly, it puts the burden of action upon the person who's suffering. They have to then think up ways for you to help them. That's not helpful. Our job when people we care about are suffering, or even strangers in, you know, Puerto Rico or Houston or Florida, our job is to anticipate the needs of the suffering and meet those needs without being asked or told, right? That's friendship. That's humanity. Never say, let me know if you need anything. The second thing is I'm often called by people who will call me and say, Rabbi, you know, my brother-in-law was just diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. They're giving him three months to live. I'm going to see him back east. What do I say? My answer is almost always, it doesn't matter what you say, just show up. Just walk in the door and sit down and the rest will unfold. And that's almost always the case. You know, the Navajos have a beautiful custom when there's a death in the village. The Navajo mourning custom is they walk into the home of the bereaved, sit down, stay for a while, stand up and leave. They say nothing. They're just physically present as a way of saying, I'm here and you are not alone. Isn't that like the biggest truth? It's just like people, what people need is just someone to be in front of them and to not try to like yeah. deter them from their own pain, but to sit with their pain. I think that's be very difficult for a lot of people is to just sit in silence, looking at the person crying or suffering and just say nothing. But I think what a beautiful moment that is for both parties. Yes. And uh, I, I uh, this past Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the year for Jews, I gave a sermon about the 11 things I've learned about death in 30 years of being a rabbi. And one of them is that when you're with people who are mourning, 
be yourself. They don't need you to, you know, approach them with drawn faces and whispered sympathies and, you know, sort of this dramatic frown on your face. They need you to be with them in death who you are with them in life. If you're a hugger, hug them. If you're a joker, joke. If you're a storyteller, tell stories. If you're a feeder, feed them. If you're a doer, do for them. Just be who you are and who you've always been for them. That's what people need and want most. They're sad enough, you know, without your sad face. Uh, so just be who you are with them. That's what that's what people need. Yeah, but unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand that. I've I've come to that in my own life. Most people think that if you're sad, that they need to find some type of way to uh, comfort you, and being themselves is not what you need in the moment. I, I think that needs to be expressed a lot more when it comes to trying to help people who are who are going through uh, what we go through. Yeah, I, I think it needs to be said a lot. It can't be said enough. There are real do's and don'ts when you're dealing with people who are grieving. Uh, and so I think that a lot of education needs to take place. I will tell you, that's this sermon that I gave. In my 30 years, I have never had more requests for a copy of a sermon than this sermon about the 11 things I've learned about you know, death in 30 years of seeing it up close. So you're right. You're right. There has to be a lot more conversation. Thank goodness for this show. It's a part of that conversation. There needs to be a lot more conversation about it so that we can really learn how to help people who are grieving. Now that leads me to another question. So your book, your new book, is it more about helping people through grief or did you write it more as a way of self-therapy or a little bit of both? Well, my general approach before I give advice about anything or try to help anyone with a problem or pain or suffering is to first find that same issue within my own self and my own life so that I come from a place that's authentic and real. I wrote the, let me put it this way. It's a very good question. I could not have written this book without having gone through what I went through. That being said, the book is nevertheless much more about other people's journeys than my own. And so is there stories like within the book about different circumstances on how people transformed after suffering? There are. The book is divided uh, into three parts, surviving, healing, and growing, which are, I believe, the three phases that pain challenges us to walk through. First, you have to survive this pain. And there are strategies for surviving pain and stories about people who have survived pain. And by the way, one of, I think, the most important things about the book is it doesn't only deal with people who suffer pain. It deals with something very few books talk about, which is what do we do when we are the cause of another person's suffering? What do you do when you are the betrayer, not the betrayed? Because that's its own universe of pain and guilt and shame. So first we have to survive that. Then we have to heal from it, and then we have the opportunity to grow from it. Dostoevsky said that his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. In other words, if we go through these painful experiences and learn nothing from them and change nothing as a result, then we're missing an extraordinary opportunity handed to us by circumstances we would not choose, but nevertheless an extraordinary opportunity to lead a more meaningful and therefore beautiful life. 
And by the way, I'm not for a moment in the book idealizing pain or glorifying pain as, you know, a path, a constant path to enlightenment. None of the insights or beauty, which I would call collateral beauty that comes from pain, is is worth it. None of us would choose these terribly painful things to happen to us. So none of it's worth it, but nevertheless, it's not worth less either. You know, I'll put it this way. A friend of mine who uh, had cancer three times, uh, three different cancers, when he was dying of the third cancer in the hospital, I went to visit him and he looked up at me from his uh, hospital bed and he said, this much character I don't need. So I'm not pretending, you know, that uh, pain is a good thing in all these instances. What I am positing is that we can lead a more meaningful and beautiful and and gentle and wise life as a result of the lessons pain comes to teach us. And pain is a very powerful teacher. The book is full of lessons people have learned from pain. Pain is often the only thing that really forces us to change. Success doesn't change people very much. Success just encourages us to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's when there's a disruption, a painful disruption, that we're forced to take a a true and deep and hard look at ourselves and our lives. I think it's really well said and, and so true. Just in my own life, I see it and other people's also, is, is when the suffering comes, it makes you take account for your belief system, the structure of how you're living your life, how you treat others, it, and how you're being treated, because then you start seeing maybe some of the stuff you've done in the past. I know after my father passed away, I started realizing what grief was, and then I realized what, how much suffering there was there. And then I realized my friends in the past who had lost people, I didn't like really give them anything. Like I wasn't sitting with them. I didn't really like feel what they were going through. So it was just like after that happened, then I realized, oh man, like my own mistakes on dealing with other people's suffering and avoiding their pain and what I was dealing with now. And so I think it's, yeah, it's, it's very, you said it's, it's not something you choose, but you can use it in such a beautiful way uh, to um, create this new life and this new perspective on life that, you know, I said like success doesn't really do. It's, it's through those trials that really sort of make you into sort of this, this new sort of being. I want to ask, if you could share a story that you wrote about in the book about uh, the suffering and then the healing and the growth that occurred afterwards. Oh, sure. Be happy to. You know, one that comes to mind is a piece in the healing section of the book called Hurt and Run. This is an amazing story. In my congregation, in one year, we had two different families with a loved one killed as a pedestrian by a driver. In the first case, it was a hit and run where the driver killed this 25-year-old young man and kept going. And the driver wasn't arrested for almost a year after the event occurred. In the second case, uh, a woman was fumbling for her cell phone and killed an elderly man in the crosswalk who was a member of the congregation. And in the second case, this woman did everything right. She stopped. She reached out to the family. She asked to go to the hospital. 
she, you know, went through both criminal and civil court cases and did hundreds of hours of community service and spent time in high schools talking about the dangers of texting and talking and driving, et cetera. And then once everything was settled and her civil case was done, she called the elderly man's wife and asked to see her to apologize. And the wife called me, who's a member of my congregation. By the way, she was a Holocaust survivor, is a Holocaust survivor. She called me and said, Rabbi, uh, she's asked to see me, the woman who killed my husband, uh, the woman who killed Bill. Do I have to see her? And I said, you do. She said, will you be with me? And I said, I will. And then this meeting took place in my office. And the woman who was driving looked at this family, this woman and her son, and she said, I am so sorry. I was wrong. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And this woman, this Holocaust survivor, got up, moved toward the woman who had killed her husband, cupped her face in her hands, wept and said to her, God bless you. I gave her a hug. It was so powerful and so beautiful. When in the previous, the first case where there was hit and run, there was nothing but pain and misery and, and just pain management every day in the life of the family of that young boy. Uh, if, and I include in the book the father's testimony at the sentencing uh, hearing for the woman who, who killed his son. And so the essay is about the difference that saying I was wrong can make. Saying, not by the way, I'm sorry. I was wrong is much more powerful. It's a much higher degree of culpability, of acceptance, of responsibility. Those are the three hardest words for most human beings to say. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. It changes everything. And now look, I know very few people reading the book, if any, will ever hit and run with a vehicle. But we all hurt and run. We all leave other people's feelings on the road like roadkill and just keep going. And there is tremendous healing and opportunity for love if we can just be strong enough and decent enough and humble enough to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Wow. That's, thank you for sharing uh, those stories and giving us sort of a, a bird eye view on, on what goes on in, in your congregation and some of the, the suffering that sort of you, you deal with. And I think in the, in the story too, as so you're talking about, you know, the um, person's forgiveness, do you see that a lot in your practice on issues in forgiveness? I know that's a big part of the religion is to forgive others. How do you see that in your practice? Well, one of the, I think, wonderful things about Judaism is how particular it is, how detailed it is in terms of the rules that should govern our behavior. And uh, the greatest Jewish thinker of the Middle Ages, Moses Maimonides, who died over 800 years ago now, actually devised a four-step process for repentance, for a way to be forgiven. And I often walk people through those four steps when they come to me for advice after having uh, hurt another person. The first step is to stop. Just 
stop the behavior, whatever it is. If you're gossiping, stop gossiping. If you're texting and when you're driving, stop texting. Put that phone in the glove compartment. Um, if you're if you're addicted to you know sex, drugs, alcohol, gambling, work, whatever it may be, stop. First step is stop. Secondly, confess out loud. Say it out loud to the person you have hurt and to God. Say it. Thirdly, apologize and ask for forgiveness. And fourth, when you are in a situation that affords you the opportunity to repeat that mistake or sin or behavior, and you do not, then you merit forgiveness. So there are actual concrete steps. For many people, there are, there are 12 steps. Uh, for Jews, four steps. And, you know, these two approaches are not antithetical to each other. You have to go through a process that involves, you know, a, a true acceptance of responsibility, a true reckoning with your life and where it went wrong, and a true change of behavior. And then you, you do merit forgiveness. I like that. And I like that it, in your steps, it doesn't say you need the other person to forgive you. It's like once you change your behavior and you say what you need to say, that's all you need to do. You don't need them to then basically say, I forgive you. And I think that's a catch because a lot of people would try to hold on to that um, for power or for whatever. Um, but that's not part of forgiveness of the other person's well, response to you. Uh, so let's talk about that for a moment. You're 100% right. And Jewish law even goes on to say that if a person has gone through those four steps, truly changed his or her life, is truly repentant, and asks for you to forgive him or her three times and you refuse three times, the sin is then upon you. Oh, so interesting. Well, yeah, I, I would think that in some cases, at least with some people, that the pain might be so great that you might even think that forgiveness is impossible. To people who feel that way, I would say that, you know, forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. You can forgive without forgetting. You can hold on to what happened and don't have to trust this person again. You don't have to engage with this person again. But you do have to recognize that at a certain point, this holding on to anger ultimately is punishing you, the victim, and not the perpetrator. Uh, in the book, I, I quote, uh, paraphrase the Buddha who said, in life, we are not punished for our anger. We are punished by our anger. There is a time to let these joyless things in our lives, to let them go. All right. So that's uh, beautiful. And, and I think it would help a lot of people that go through that, not just in grief, but just in life in general. Because forgiveness is one of those things that uh, you keep trying because people keep trying you in different ways and you're on your different beliefs and different emotions that come up uh, on, your, on your journey. Um, and so I think you know, those tools could be very helpful to someone to understand forgiveness in a new way and to open their hearts to people in a, in a new way as they move it's forward. It's ultimately liberating. It's ultimately yeah. liberating to forgive. Did you in your, your life, so you said like it, when you're in your depression, uh, and you affected so many people, I'm guessing, from your family to the congregation, because you were never your yourself prior. That was, you know, 
did you ever need to forgive or ask for forgiveness in those because of that time that you suffered? You know, I the forgiveness that I had to reckon with was more self-forgiveness than anything else. The depression lasted only a few weeks as I was you know, coming off of the opioids and the steroids. And I did reach out for help. I, I did know this story that says the prisoner cannot free himself. And I reached out to help from a very talented psychiatrist. And I reached out to friends. And uh, as I said earlier, I have the most extraordinary, extraordinary wife who literally carried me uh, physically and metaphorically through this with her own beautiful inner strength. So what I've had to struggle with mostly is the uh, forgiveness of self uh, because part of what led to my painful situation was the the life out of balance that I had been leading. Um, I was a terrible workaholic. I was extremely demanding. I, in the book, tell a little bit about my personal story. I grew up with a, a demanding and tyrannical, tyrannical father um, and, you know, have punched above my weight my entire life without realizing the toll that it was taking on me. Uh, so I, I've had to do a lot of self-reflection. I've had to do a lot of hard work. I've had to work hard to forgive myself and to get over the guilt and the shame of the way in which my ambitions caused me to treat others and myself. And I'll, I'll say this another, uh, when it comes to self-forgiveness. A little bit of guilt or shame is not such a terrible thing. You know, I have a new car and it has this warning light on the side view mirrors. When you're veering out of your lane and there's oncoming traffic, it, it beeps and flashes. And I, I like to think of guilt from our past in that way that a little bit of it is positive because it keeps you in your lane. It can prevent us from going back to the person we were before, that less beautiful, wise, gentle, kind person that we were before. But for me, um, the, the pain I was doing was mostly to my, uh, inflicting was really mostly upon myself and not upon others. And so let's go back to, since this is the Grief Dreams podcast, I'm just curious to know in your practice you I've dealt with a lot of people in their grief after a loss. Have you ever heard about dreams people have of their deceased loved ones? I have. And and I have heard just too many of these stories to dismiss them. If you'd like, I you know, I mentioned earlier I gave this eleven point sermon about what I've learned about death. I have it up on my screen now. If you want me, it's not that long. I'll read you the piece on the afterlife and okay. So the ninth point I made in this sermon about death says the following. The afterlife might be real. Judaism has a lot to say about the afterlife, and much of it is contradictory. Views range from Ezekiel's resurrection vision in the Valley of Dry Bones that take on flesh to the transmigration of souls, which is Judaism's version of reincarnation, to heaven and hell scenarios in the Talmud, to the rationalists and humanists who say there is no such thing as an afterlife. It is easy to say we live on in memory, but the truth is at some point there will not be a single person left alive who remembers us. So what can we credibly say about the other side? I have seen about 700 dead bodies. A body is not a person. It is a vessel. There is so much more to us than our bodies. But where does the soul go? I do not know but I have heard too many stories, real stories, 
to dismiss the possibility of an afterlife. My wife's best friend, Laura, died 15 years ago. Every year, every year on Laura's birthday, Betsy sees a ladybug. Perhaps it's just a coincidence. Perhaps not. Lauren told me this story. At one of my grief group meetings, we had to go around and answer, if you had to say one thing to your spouse right now, what would it be? I said, please keep showing me signs you are here with me. I returned to my car. Out of the hundreds of songs in my iTunes library, Springsteen's Promised Land started playing. The one song Eddie told me he wanted played at his funeral. These stories bring me great warmth and hope and strength. Dreams, butterflies, ladybugs, a smell, a vision, a song, a soft breeze in a hard moment. These reminders may or may not be a presence, but they are real and they are to be treasured. They are their own afterlife. More we cannot know. That's nice. You're allowing people that have these dream encounters, um, guessing that are comforting, to determine what they see in it, if it's a visitation or not. And it's not doesn't seem like you have a, a preference on what they believe as long as it's positive and helping them. Is that true? That's true. And frankly, you know, when it comes to the afterlife, there's only way there's only one way to find out. And it requires us to die. So none of us know, right? (laughs) None of us know. (laughs) No one can come back and say there is or there isn't. So we have to look at these hints and and ponder the great mystery. My father is deep into Alzheimer's. He was diagnosed about 10 years ago. He's very deep into it now. And, you know, one of the things you learn as a rabbi is that people who have dementia and Alzheimer's, they die twice. They really die twice. Their mind dies, and then their body dies years later. So I'm, in a way, already deep into grieving for my father. Uh, And I do dream about him. And I cherish these dreams because they are not dreams of him in his present state. They bring back the dad I knew, you know, the dad who danced on roller skates and loved hot fudge sundaes and loved to laugh, loved to eat love the warm sunshine and a walk on the beach. How young they is he? They help me. In the My dream. dad is 85. He's 85. Oh, in these dreams, yeah. you know, it, it varies in these dreams. But I would say he's sort of the dad of my teen years. Mm. And I get to spend time with my dad before the Alzheimer's, before the nursing home, before the wheelchair and the diaper and the bib and all of that that his life is defined by now. So for me, these dreams are such a welcome um, vacation from the current reality and such powerful reminders of, you know, the dad who died years ago. I cherish them. Wow. So are they, like, would you classify them as old memories or are they something different? I don't classify them. I just Mm. embrace them and treasure them. Oh, cool. Wow. So interesting. So interesting you're having those dreams. Because we haven't actually, yeah, I never spoke to anyone who has this sort of anticipatory grief going on and asked them about dreams prior to the death. And so that's interesting that they're positive and you're finding comfort from them. I think that's something I can take as I move forward doing the research because if it's helping you, it's probably helping a lot of other people. And to be able to 
get people to understand that, to ask maybe the questions on, you know, like what kind of dreams are you having and maybe help them process some of their concerns. Cause some people can have like negative dreams. I'm guessing you've heard a lot of those. Yes. 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 And I, look, I, I think that grief is its own uh, journey. You know, again, I, at, you guys can can edit this out later if you don't want to hear more of this sermon, but I have a piece about grief, which I'd be happy to read to you too. And yeah, that's it's, it's positive and negative. So I'll read it to you and, uh, you know, because I really appreciate the work that you're doing in this whole area of grief and afterlife and people's experiences, because uh, it, a person who's grieving, encountering someone who doesn't understand the grief process is really exacerbating of their pain. So anyway, this is the piece on grief. Anyone who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line does not understand grief. Grief is not a linear process with sadness diminishing each day until it clears up like some infection. Grief ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows. Sometimes we can stand up in it. Other times it pulls us under thrashes and scares us. The world is upside down and we cannot breathe. When that wave called grief comes, it is best to float with the pain and the emptiness. Give into it. Be with it. Take your time and then stand up again. We lose so much to death. Half our memory is gone with the death of the only person on earth who shared our memories of that incredible trip that pizza from that little place down that alley, the baby's first stumbles across the room, that old white Ford we took cross-country when we were young and had no money. We lose the only mother, the only father we will ever have. We lose so much love to death. And if that love is real and deep, the grief is real and deep. Grief is not a race to be won or an ill to be cured. To deny grief its due is to deny the love we have for those we have no longer. Do not fight grief when it comes. Float with it. Then stand again. Yeah, that yeah, it's exactly what, you know what it is. And and grief is it's that's why I think people don't understand. They do think it's linear a lot of the time. And it yeah. and it's hard for them to understand that because everything in life is usually linear. But this is, it keeps right. going back and they're like, how, when will it stop? And I don't know if it like ever stops. Darwin, like your dad's been gone for a long time and you have your own podcast talking about your own struggles. Do you find it like th- this making sense to you? Yes, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it ebbs and flows. Some days are, well, each day is usually for me better than the day before, but in the ebbs and flows, as I always speak about my own podcast, for me, the ebbs and flows are bigger in the month of April than anything else. Uh, that's when basically all the milestones in my family pretty much happened. Uh, my father's birthday, my parents' anniversary, uh, the day my dad died, all that stuff happened in April. So if there's a bigger ebb or flow <laughs> uh, for me, that's when it happens to be. And I know a lot of people who have lost people who go through something similar. You might seem that you're okay uh, certain days of the of the week of the year or even most of the time but then there are certain times when grief hits you harder than others yeah yeah the poet called death the absence that is forever present 
And that's April for you and your family, Darwin. I will say this, that um, you have used your grief to ennoble your life and the life of others. Uh, you know, you have done something beautiful for others by bringing this very painful journey to the surface so that people who are on their own painful journeys feel uh, some kinship of soul and spirit with you and with each other. And, you know, really, what else can we do? I've got one more question, getting back to um, the dreams that you say you're having about your dad. You earlier yeah. described them or mentioned them as being uh, tyrannical. So these dreams yeah. and all these memories that you have, are they always positive or have you have you had anything negative? I, because for me in my own life, one of the things that, and again, my father died when I was 10, so all I knew was he was the man that I wanted to most be like when I was a kid. So I don't have, I personally don't have any negative memories of my yeah. father. So if, if you're dreaming about just positive things or have you had any negative dreams? It's a great question. And I've had only positive dreams of my dad, my psyche, my soul somehow are curating my memories in a way that has been softened by time and by his disease. That tyrannical fa tyrannical father is completely gone now. All the sharp edges have been rounded off by this disease. Uh, and I have to work at reminding myself sometimes how really um, tough he was on me. And I only do that when it's going to help me take better care of myself and not overwork the way I have in the past. So... I can selectively recall those things, but when I'm in a subconscious state, uh, in a dream state, it's very interesting. My, my heart, mind, and soul have curated only the best, softest, and most beautiful uh, memories of my dad. And that's one of, I guess, the blessings of time and of sleep. Oh, that's cool. It's like I say, my, my biggest fear when, when, when I think and have those memories, my biggest fear is that I find out that my father wasn't the person I thought he was. So it's nice to hear you say that. Well, I can tell you, uh, Darwin, that every child at some age does come to the realization that uh, his or her parents really, really were only human. Um, so that's that's okay. That's That's a part of growing up. But um, I think the fact that your father died when you were 10 is, you know, painful, painful and difficult uh, challenge in your life. But it also means that your repository of memory is that of a 10-year-old little boy who idolized his father. And I would embrace that as a beautiful gift uh, among many terrible things of, uh, that come with losing a father at that age. One of the beautiful gifts that comes from it is you do have only the best of him in your heart and your mind and your soul. And, and that's, uh, that's to be cherished. Definitely. Thanks. It's amazing. And it's amazing to hear you just speak on the subject and to talk about dreams and the dreams you're having. I think it's just it's all fascinating. So the question we usually ask people at the end of podcasts is what dream would you want to have of the deceased? But since your father's still living, can you imagine a time when he does die? What dream would you want to have after he passes away? 
well, it's, it's a dream I'd want to have today while he's alive. I would love to, for me, I would love to be able to, uh, I would love to be able to show my father uh, the past 10 years of my life. I would love to be able to say, Dad, I, I have this new book coming. You know, I have this book out. It, it's called More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms It. And you're in it. And as hard as you were on me, I've turned it into a gift. And hey, look, look, look at Betsy today. And hey, Aaron has a girlfriend. I think they're going to get married. And Hannah's selling real estate. You'd be so proud of her. The dream I wish I could have is I wish I could show my dad and have him really understand what's happened in, in the past 10 years since he's been gone in so many ways. Wow. Hearing that story just touches my heart because you can just, you can feel the immense suffering um, that you're going through. You said you're double loss and it's something I've never yes. dealt with personally, but it really speaks to that point of having someone's body there, but you know, their understanding and their cognition isn't there that once was for you to tell them the stuff and get the feedback and wow, you know, and you're an amazing person to be able to do what you're doing throughout, not only your own three years of suffering, but your father's 10 years of suffering to be able to, not give up on life and to use this as a way to transform not only your being but the the world as a whole through writing your books doing your lectures and doing your your talks and i think that just you know something that hopefully you do sit down and reflect on what you have been doing with your own loss uh, in many different ways your own suffering and to really be proud of that because, you know, like you're a beacon of life for a lot of people who are trying to find hope in the world and trying to find meaning. And you're giving them uh, at least a glimpse of what can be done and a roadmap on, on what may work for them. I really uh, deeply appreciate uh, what you're saying. And I'm, I, I try every day to be worthy of, uh, of the suffering not only in my own life, but in uh, the suffering of the many, many people who share their lives with me. And, you know, um, it has helped me count my blessings every day, and it has helped me appreciate every moment of my life uh, in a way I, I never could have otherwise. So that's the, that's the sunrise after the dark night. I embrace it, and I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful to both of you for allowing me to chat with you today. Thank you. And so, do you have any contacts? Where can people find the book? Can you speak uh, sure. The, sure. Uh, so, the, uh, again, the book is called More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us. And it's available on Amazon. And also, at, it's published by Hay House, great publisher. And you can also get it through their website. It's in bookstores. Uh, but I think the easiest way for people to get it is just to go to Amazon.com and uh, put in my name, Steve Leader, L-E-D-E-R, or the book title, More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us. You know, the holidays are coming up for many people. The holidays are, are a hurtful, painful, difficult time. And I honestly uh, think this is a perfect book to give to a really tough year and for whom the holidays will not necessarily be so happy this year. Uh, and look, uh, my mission, and I hope 
the mission of all good human beings is to help other people who are suffering. And this this book, more beautiful than before, is is my way. That's nice. And yeah, if you if you do give that book out as a Christmas gift, also acknowledge what you're doing is you're acknowledging their loss. And I think that's the most important thing this Christmas. If someone's lost someone a year, two years, five years, and they're not having their special person with them this year, to really acknowledge that yeah. in a card, in a gift, a personalized yeah. gift in some way, to say, I remember. And that's what they long for. I know I do as I move forward is just people to bring up the fact that there is something missing out of today, uh, a special holiday. Yeah. So Josh, you, you need to give one to Darwin in April. <laughs> All right. All right. We'll do. Well, now you told them, so All it's right. not going to be that special, but <laughs> it'll still matter. I'll pretend that this conversation never took place. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. All right. So just to end on uh, our stuff. So uh, Darwin, where, where can people find uh, your podcast? Sure. My podcast, again, is called Dealing With My Grief. It can be found at dealingwithmygrief.com. You can also subscribe to it in uh, iTunes or, I guess, uh, Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, iTunes, uh, should say, um, TuneIn, or anywhere that you can typically listen to podcasts. Beautiful. Yes. So uh, thank you, Darwin, for coming on and uh, being the co-host. And for our stuff, please check out griefdreams.ca. More information on the topic, the research I'm doing at Brock. Um, the fit- we also have the Facebook group. Uh, so please check that out if you want to hear more stories about these dreams people share or you want to share your own. And also you can check out our Instagram at, at Grief Dreams. And so thank you again for tuning in. And if you want to share this, I think this is a great episode for a lot of people to hear because we all go through suffering and we all have trouble dealing with what's going on. So please share the episode. And as we like to finish uh, with love and gratitude, from us to you. introduced myself you have introduced yourself this is a very good conversation